0: This is episode 172 of the Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled, Reimagining Capitalism with Rebecca Henderson. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. I'm so pleased to welcome Rebecca Henderson to the show today, and I'll just introduce her. Uh, She's going to be talking about her book, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire. She's one of 25 university professors at Harvard, a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research, and a fellow of both the British Academy and the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's an expert on innovation and organizational change, and her research explores the degree to which the private sector can play a major role in building a more sustainable economy, focusing particularly on the relationships between organizational purpose, innovation, and productivity in high-performance organizations. Love all those words. For several years, she Taught reimagining reimagining capitalism, business, and the big problems, a course that grew from 28 students to over 300, and that's the basis for the book we'll be talking about today, Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire, and that book just came out in April. And I'm a big uh, fan of this book, which I'm sure that'll come across uh, during our episode today. But I definitely recommend that you write down that title and go check it out. Rebecca sits on the boards of IDEX Laboratories and Sarah's, if I'm not mispronouncing those. Her publication includes leading sustainable change and organizational perspective and accelerating energy innovation, lessons from multiple sectors. She was named one of three outstanding directors of 2019 by the Financial Times. Rebecca, welcome to the show. Jennifer, I'm
1: delighted to be here. Thank you for the invitation.
0: All right, let's start with some statistics from the book. Sorry to uh, quote your own stats back at you. And I will just say for the listeners, the book is really chock full of information and data. And I took so many notes the first time I came through it that I actually had to go back through a second time and kind of call my notes. But, but let's start with kind of an overview of some statistics and why somebody like me at my age feels as though the recent decades are not like the decades before. So in the 34-year period after World War II, the U.S. pre-tax national income doubled. The poorest half of Americans saw their income more than double, and the richest 10% about the same. Then, in the next 34 years, from 1980 to 2014, the poorest half saw their income grow by only 1%, while the richest 10% grew by more than double, 121%, and the income of the top 1% more than tripled. Okay, just to add on, and we've done episodes about a CEO pay here before. The average CEO pay in 1978 was 30 times that of the average worker. And in 2017, we've mentioned these statistics before, it was 312 times the average worker. So it feels as though something has gone very awry with our country, or at least something very different. So Rebecca, can you tell us how attitudes toward capitalism and our values have changed during that time frame? In
1: the 80s and 90s, capitalism was king. We saw enormous growth and the 2000s, We saw the internet explosion, we saw the stock exchange go crazy, GDP increase enormously. It seemed that capitalism could do no wrong. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And it's it's really only in the last 10 years, I think, that we've realized that all that capitalism came with a number of unwelcome side effects.
0: Mm.
1: And it's become clear that while it increased GDP, enormously, most of those gains went to the top 10% and indeed to the top 1%. I mean, you've just cited the statistics. They are so striking. Yeah. And so yes, our society is a whole lot richer, but millions of people haven't really seen a pay raise and they don't believe their children are going to do better than they are. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that's happened in the US is really a real challenge to the American dream. Technically, rates of social mobility have been falling steadily for the last 20 years. Mm. And now, statistically, half the people in this country uh, can't expect to do better than their parents, Mm -hmm. which is a huge change when you look back historically in the US. And at the same time, a number of other small problems like climate change and the poisoning of the oceans and topsoil, uh, destruction have, have been going quietly on. And I think they're starting to reach critical mass. People have been jumping up and down, uh, talking about climate change for a while, but I think the fires in Australia and California last year, the, uh, increasingly frequent floods and droughts, the huge heat dome we've had over the US just these last uh, few months are really putting that on the table. And I think there's the creeping suspicion that capitalism isn't working for
0: everyone. Definitely.
1: You know, and when I talk to audiences, particularly younger people, Mm -hmm. I'm struck by how often they say to me, don't reimagine capitalism, Rebecca. We need to throw the whole thing out. Yeah, The Just uh, just Capital run in, ran a poll a few weeks ago suggesting that only about 25% of American adults think that capitalism is working for them. Mm. I mean, that's incredible.
0: Yeah, that's this bad.
1: feels like a crisis of confidence in something that... That, as you know, I believe is one of the great inventions of the human race. It just, um, you know, capitalism has to be genuinely free and fair Mm -hmm. to work for everyone. And unfortunately, we have been operating a version that is neither free nor fair.
0: (laughs) I think that's one of the points that that's made in your book early and And I share that feeling that there's a lot of crowing about capitalism and free markets, but that's not really what we have right now. And you write that the free markets are very important, but they, I'm going to quote your words at you, sorry. They only work their magic if prices reflect all available info, when there is genuine freedom of opportunity, when rules of the game support genuine competition. If firms can dump toxic waste into the river, control the political process, and get together to fix prices, free markets will not increase either aggregate wealth or individual freedom. So what examples can you think of that demonstrate that we're not really experiencing free markets?
1: Let me start with the fact that we can burn fossil fuels for free. Mm-hmm. You know, the magic of the price system only works when prices reflect real costs.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Let's think for a moment about the real costs of fossil fuels. Suppose that I'm holding $10 worth of coal fired electricity in my hands. So it's a cloud of electrons that was made by burning coal. Mm-hmm. And, you know, suppose it cost me 10 bucks. Well, we now know that this $10 worth of electricity is causing at least $8 worth of damage to human health mm. in asthma, in premature deaths, in all kinds of respiratory conditions that when you burn coal, these particulates and mercury and all this junk worldwide, coal kills millions of people a year. In in China, it kills at least a third of a million people a year. Wow. So, you know, that $8 is nearly as much as I paid for the coal. So, that's okay. That price is really out of whack. But wait, it gets worse because that much coal-fired electricity is also causing at least $8 worth of climate change in terms of rising sea levels, increasing increasing floods and droughts, in the probability that we're going to see millions of people migrate north as the harvests fail around the equatorial belt of the earth, I mean, it now looks as though the the sort of equatorial belt, the center of the earth is going to become uninhabitable much sooner than scientists initially realized. And that the failure of the rains in places like India and Africa is, is going to cause enormous suffering and why should we worry about that because well we're going to die from heat stroke too but um the department of defense expects literally millions of people to migrate north so i mean Mm -hmm. estimating the cost of all that damage is super super hard Mm -hmm. but the conservative estimate is that the damage caused by that ten dollars worth of coal-fired electricity is about eight bucks so Every time we burn fossil fuels, we're not paying, you know, and spend $10 to do that. We're not paying another $16 worth of damage. This is huge. So so the cost is way out of whack. In essence, we're allowing ourselves, because, you know, I drive a car and use fossil fuels as well, to impose enormous costs on other people and on our children. And it's not fair. Mm -hmm. Right? So the prices are not accurate, they are not fair. That that's the first problem. The second problem is we don't have genuine freedom of opportunity. You know, I live in a very privileged location where life expectancy is great and education is excellent. Mm -hmm. But if I drive just an hour west or even 20 minutes, there are zip codes where life expectancy is lower than life expectancy in Botswana.
0: Yeah.
1: And the educational system is, I, I don't know what the polite term is, <laughs> but um, really awful. Yeah. And so if you happen to be born to parents who live in the wrong zip code, you are basically, I mean, you're being born with weights on your feet and and I mean, this is not some abstract thing. Your brain is likely to suffer because you're not, you are not—you don't have adequate nutrition in your first few years of life. I mean, half of American children right now in the US are suffering from food insecurity, which is a polite way of saying they're going to bed hungry every night.
0: Yeah.
1: And, you know, at least sometime during the month. And if you're hungry, if you have, you know, if your parents don't have adequate uh, healthcare, if the education system is... Really, I want to use a word. You, you <laughs> go know, like, for it. Just like, go for like it. <laughs> if the education system is is crap, mm-hmm. then then how are you going to c- compete adequately in today's world?
0: Yeah,
1: um, it's just not. And and it's not free. I mean, we talk about free opportunity. And as I said, I'm a huge fan of free markets. I'm a card-carrying economist with a PhD from Harvard. I really believe that free markets are one of the great inventions of the human race. But there has to be real prices. And everybody has to be able to participate. And here's the third problem. And you mentioned this. Firms cannot set the rules of the game in their own favor. Mm -hmm. You know, when we told firms that their first duty was to maximize shareholder value, I don't think we meant by rewriting the rules so no one can compete with you. I mean, I'm sure
0: that's not what we meant. (laughs) Um, We forgot to put that in the fine print. Yeah, exactly.
1: (laughs) I sometimes say, you know, it, it, it came with a big asterisk. And the big asterisk was you mustn't flood the political system with so much money that essentially... It appears to be captured and maybe even is captured. I mean, 70% Mm -hmm. of people in the U.S. think the system is rigged against them. When you look at the political science research, it looks as though they're right. The legislation that gets passed is the legislation that reflects the preferences of the rich. Mm -hmm. Uh, you have increasing concentration, which my goodness, the current emergency looks as though it's going to accelerate with the big firms getting bigger and bigger and buying up the small firms. And if the bigger firms can go to the local politicians and say, you know, about that antitrust law, you know, no, we, we really don't want to see that, that enforced. And, and, uh, you know, there's, there's a million ways you can tilt the playing field mm-hmm. to keep out small entrants and make sure that you benefit. And and even if, and I know lots of firms that aren't doing that, that really are doing the best they can, but the perception that that's happening is mm-hmm. so destructive. So we have problems. <laughs> it's not a free and fair capitalism. We really need to reimagine it.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the political process. This was one, again, some of the statistics that kind of blew my mind. Again, to quote back at you. So one thing is that voting in the U.S. is among the lowest in the world, which is really remarkable. And then after the Citizens United decision uh, from your book, external spending on presidential elections served from $338 million in 2008 to one point four billion in 2016. And that excludes politically motivated donations by the tax-exempt charitable foundations of U.S. companies. And you quote a recent study that estimated that at an additional $1.6 billion in 2014. So, as you say, it opens the private sector up to charges of corruption and greatly reduces trust in the democratic process. Amen. Right. There's a very dim view in many circles today of government, and you say that, quote, the belief that government is highly destructive, that it means unresponsive bureaucrats, high taxes, and endless regulation, has thus been at least partially constructed by a more than 50-year campaign. Wow. Okay. So how did that happen? What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) There's a ton
1: of evidence in political science and development economics that healthy societies with strong economies rest on three foundations, three legs to the stool, if you like. Mm -hmm. One of them is free markets. Absolutely. Huge driver of prosperity and jobs and got to have the free market. The second is a free society. Mm. And that means some kind of way that employees can get together and sort of represent themselves. I, I hesitate to use the word unions because it's got a really bad name, mm-hmm. but some form of employee representation, an independent judiciary, and a really free press so that you have a shared sense of what is true. Yeah. And then the third is a democratically accountable, capable, government. Mm -hmm. And you need the three. Now, why do you need the three? You need the three because all three, well, government and markets, are always trying to grab too much power. Mm -hmm. The nature of governments and the nature of markets is that they want to push the limits. You tell a business person, shareholder value is maximization is your only goal, and they'll say, whoa, okay, well, throw carbon dioxide out the window, drive wages down below a living wage so that my employees live on food stamps and um, subvert the politicians. Check. Yeah. And again, I'm kind of <laughs> <here. Right. laughs> both of us have many friends who are honest business people who would never think of doing this. But but the tendency pushes people in that direction. Sure. And if your competitors are doing that, you sort of have to do it too. Yeah. So so we gotta control the free market. Check. Well, let's go to government. Well, government is, you know, people are nervous about government for a good reason, Mm -hmm. which is if governments are not genuinely democratic and genuinely accountable, they tend to degenerate into tyranny. Not to mention none of us really like paying our taxes and no one is super excited when the government inspector shows up. Mm -hmm. We know sort of theoretically that we need government because, my goodness, we really do. Why do we need government? We need government first to act on a check on firms
0: mm-hmm.
1: as well as defense, of course, but, but as a check on firms so that yes, there is uh, you can't just dump waste into the river for free, that you, you make sure prices are reflect real costs, that everybody gets a chance to participate. So there's decent education and health, and that firms can't write the rules themselves and you have decent antitrust enforcement and so on. So we need government to balance markets. Okay. But all of us individually are like, you know, I'm not so keen on paying my taxes. I'm not so keen on the regulation. So you're always, always having to remind people of how important democracy is and how important it is to vote. Well, so here's the issue about the last 50 years is an important part of our society decided business was the problem, not the solution. I mean, President Reagan, who... Many good qualities, but he came to power saying the ten worst words in the English language are, I'm from the government. I'm here to help.
0: Oh, mm -hmm.
1: government. Yeah, from the government. I'm here from the government. I'm here to help. And those are the worst words in the English language. And then Grover Norquist said, well, we better drown government in the bathtub. And business people came to believe they didn't need government. Mm -hmm. That if you could just unleash the power of the market, we would be fine. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're living with. And we're also living with the results of a systematic political campaign to attack government. Some of that was driven by business people who felt that government had overreached. And of course, at times, government overreaches. Mm -hmm. But a systematic attack, bureaucrats are always bad, government's always bad. But then that group formed an alliance with a number of people who were afraid that a strong central government meant an increased voice for people of color. And the US has a very mixed history about how people feel about letting people who don't look like us actually vote. Uh-huh. There's no right to vote in the Constitution. The history of voter suppression goes way, way back. Uh, you know, After the Civil War, after Reconstruction, when the slaves were freed, a lot of the local whites said, whoa, whoa, okay, we freed them, but you know, right. we're not going to let them vote. I mean, vote. Mm-hmm. So that group has always been very skittish around a strong central government. One of the facts I learned recently, which just... Jennifer, you probably knew this, but I did not, is when the South broke away from the North in the Civil War, Mm -hmm. it adopted the original U.S. Constitution, every single word, except the clauses about the central government and the powers of the central government. Uh Uh-huh. No government that builds roads, no government that builds um, schools. We don't want that kind of federal action. Mm -hmm. We want the government that's best that governs least. So you've got this deep history. We don't like government. You've got these business people who are like lower taxes and less regulation, please, pumping money into the political system and into climate denialism, into continuous propaganda about... You know, government. You don't want that. They're uh, they're incompetent, and every time they get into power, what do they do? They cut the budgets and they fire people. And who do you think leaves government service when government is run down and attacked? The people who can get other jobs, right? The energetic, ambitious people leave. Yeah. Plus, we've had this celebration of capitalism for so long. I've been teaching MBAs for thirty years. Mm-hmm. In the first twenty-eight none of the MBAs came to me and said, you know, I'm thinking of a career in public service. Right. That has just changed. Oh, interesting. The last two, three years, the students are coming to me and saying, you know, I'm thinking I want a career in public service. What kind of private sector experience might be useful? But it really feels to me as though we need good people in government and I want to do what I can to help. Wow. That is a huge change. Yeah. So that was a very long answer. I apologize. I promise to be quicker next time.
0: Yeah, but no, no, that's really it, great. Very
1: helpful. It's so central to understanding what's going on, I think.
0: Yeah, your, your comments about uh, government being a bad word now really resonate with me. In fact, I've been pretty surprised, even at my advanced age, at how many people end up in government who seem to be anti-government. It's like, well, what why would you go to work in an institution that you want to, you know, undo, that you that you want to destroy?
1: Well, because you believe it should be destroyed. No. And and so, I mean, in the pandemic, the current administration announced it was stopping enforcement of all the environmental rules. That those are the rules that control what gets into our drinking water.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, it's um, it's breathtaking. And for me, as I said, this is not real capitalism. Uh-huh. That when we look back over time and across history, that free markets have really thrived when there's been a capable democratic government acting as a partner to the free markets, making sure the rules are clear, making sure that everyone can play. So, um, you know, sometimes people say, oh, Rebecca, you're a socialist, you're so left-wing. I am not. Mm-mm. I love free markets. I just want them back in balance.
0: Mm-hmm. So you make that point in the book again. You know, I had all these light bulbs going off in my head while I read your book. And and you talk about the balance of power between these two core institutions. And it's interesting how well we understand checks and balances inside the government. but But I think your book really brings out that you need it really across the spectrum of participatory government and the free market. And you talk about how that works in what you call inclusive regimes and mm-hmm. what that means. So, so can you talk a little bit about that?
1: In an inclusive regime, everybody's included, both economically and politically. Mm. So what that means economically is you have a free market instead of crony capitalism in which a few large firms control the economy and all the best jobs go to the prime minister's nephew.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: That's what crony capitalism looks like. But in genuine free capitalism, which the U.S. had for many years, everyone can participate regardless of, you know, gender or color of their skin. Um, and, And if you're smart and thoughtful, you can get ahead. The other part of inclusive, um, inclusive institutions is that your voice is valued, your vote is valued. So you balance the power of the wealthy by the power of the many. So in an inclusive society, everyone can vote and everyone can speak up. That's why I say this huge word, civil society, which, forgive me, sounds like such an academic word. But what it means is that people aren't afraid to talk up. To speak up, they aren't afraid to come together and form associations that press for, for uh, press for change, to form new political parties, to make a fuss, and the judiciary is independent, which I know we all take for granted, but we should not. Courts that are not controlled by the rich and powerful incredibly helpful, and it, it's that it's that kind of inclusion. And notice the judiciary is like that. Justice for everyone, not just for the rich and well-connected. And in many parts of the world, you don't have any of that. You don't have a free market. You don't have a democracy. You don't have justice that's open to everyone. You have corruption. You have, I call it in the book, extraction. Mm -hmm. And a few people get together and they take almost everything they can. Mm -hmm. And you think of Putin's Russia just as extractive as Stalin's Russia. (laughs) Alas, it looks as though there's a risk that the Chinese might be sliding in that direction. You look at the kinds, uh, you know, who owns the big companies, who makes the money, the wealth that the people in the ruling party are walking away with. I mean, extraction is... Extraction is the Pharaohs or Henry VIII. You know, mm-hmm. a few people on top, everybody else struggling at the margin. Inclusion is the great invention of the West, in Europe and the U.S. This idea that everyone should be able to start a firm, everyone should be able to vote, and everyone should get justice—it's uh, its not a revolutionary idea. You know, I was I was talking to a friend, and he said, Rebecca. You call your book reimagining capitalism, but really it should be called, please take me back to the capitalism of the 50s and 60s, only without the misogyny and the racism, please.
0: (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, just a few things we'd like to leave out. I think that's a a good point, that that a lot of those ideas that you talk about in the book are actually a return to how things were.
1: It's not that as if it's never been done. I'm not talking about Mm -hmm. some distant utopia. Mm -hmm. We came out of World War II with a strong labor movement, with business people who believed that their role was to help build a strong and thriving economy. General Motors, published a chart in their annual report with, here's the returns we give to all our stakeholders, not just our investors, up until the mid-60s. Mm-hmm. And you had a government that was widely respected, that was putting in place um, the highways, mm-hmm. the NASA, mm-hmm. um, the, the, you know, requiring, ed, you know, uh, huge improvements in education that was building out our universities. There's a wonderful book called The Entrepreneurial State hmm. by Mariana Matsukato, which uh, I would recommend to anyone interested in these questions. Um, she says, The Entrepreneurial State, Debunking Public versus Private Sector Myths. Oh, interesting. Goes through and she shows in industry after industry how government played a critical role in driving technical change in making. Making sure everyone had the education they needed in laying the groundwork for a financial system that was genuinely inclusive mm-hmm. so that small business people could get the kinds of loans they needed. So it's this partnership between the public and private sectors in making a healthy society that I believe is what we need. And it's it's really a reclaiming of something that we had. Now, I don't mean to minimize the enormous misogyny and structural racism that characterized that period of American capitalism. But I, I think we can I think we can have it all. Not <laughs> utopia, but at least a world in which we're really mutually respectful of government and markets, and everyone can participate.
0: Which brings us to one of your reasons for hope in the book. And I'm going to kind of clump together a whole bunch of of, uh, topics here and just kind of let you talk about whichever ones you want. So you give some examples about President Trump's Manufacturing Council, And then you also make the comment, you know, people might laugh at the idea of self-regulation, but even the mobsters met from time to time, you know, to to kind of collaborate, right, for the bigger picture. And then Eleanor Ostrom has work about industry-wide cooperation. So tell us from the business side what you think some reasons for hope could be.
1: Sure. My book is ultimately about the fact that we can do this, we can reimagine capitalism and that business can play an important role in doing this. So that if the goal is rebalancing our society, how can business help? Mm-hmm. And I lay out, I am a business school professor, five easy steps, not easy, uh, yes. but, um, <laughs> but five steps that business can take. And I you know, I'm going to summarize them quickly here, but I, I tell lots of stories. Um, this is really happening. Mm-hmm. Thousands of business people are, are beginning to move in this direction. A lot of businesses are turning towards purpose. The idea that the goal of business is not to make money, making money is a means to an end. The goal of business is helping to build a thriving and prosperous society. And so, you have firms like Norsk Genvinning, which is a Norwegian waste company, where the CEO, uh, Eric Osmundsen decided that he was going to transform a garbage business into a high-tech recycling business. And in doing so greatly reduce greenhouse gas emissions and reduce the amount of mining that had to be done and all the environmental degradation that mining causes because you would pull metals out of the waste stream rather than just dumping them into holes in the ground.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And you know, he, yes, you have to make money. I mean, I, I have 25 years corporate board experience, so I understand you need a decent return to your investors. But the goal of the business isn't making money. The goal is creating great products that make a difference for their customers with decent jobs and so you know i talk a lot about high road employment systems what does that mean that means if you treat people with dignity and respect and pay them well and design work so that you give them an opportunity to thrive and and contribute to the purpose of the company productivity goes up innovation goes up tons of research suggesting this is the case Not that it's the ticket to outsize profits, but you can certainly survive competitively and make a ton of difference in thousands of people's lives. So adopt a purpose, build a business model around making a difference in the world. It's no coincidence that the best IPO of the last 20 years was a soybean burger company. Mm the whole of agriculture has to be transformed. And so you see all these companies moving in the direction of trying to build more sustainable agriculture, building new business models, making money, transportation, infrastructure, power, sector, so many new uh, new businesses. I wish I could. Uh, I wish I, could. I had a video camera of all the amazing entrepreneurs that came into my office this fall telling me about the new businesses they had, you know, let me mine minerals from giant nodules on the seafloor. I'm going to build algae in tanks that replaces soybeans or palm oil so that we won't have to cut down all the trees. I mean, there's so much innovation going on. So clearly one way business can help is by moving to address these enormous problems, building business models around them, and, and treating people well. So that, that, that's, I think, it really, really key The second way they can help, as you suggested, is even mobsters get together from time to time. (laughs) You know, Eric at Nosk Genvinning, he worked out that, yes, he could transform his own firm, but that doing the right thing with the garbage was at least in the short term going to be more expensive, Uh Uh, particularly because his competitors were behaving really badly. I mean, Mm -hmm. they were dumping literally dumping toxic waste into the field off Oslo. I mean, really, uh, really, the industry was hugely corrupt. So he worked out that if he was going to do well, he had to persuade other firms to change as well. Mm -hmm. That if everybody started doing the right thing, if nobody dumped their garbage into the fjord, then no one had competitive pressure to do so. Right. That, that, that's the key insight. I might want to pay people who work for me more, but if you're still paying really low wages, I have to follow. That's the pressure of competition.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If I can talk everyone in my region or everyone in my industry to paying decent wages, to not dumping um, stuff into the river, then none of us are at a competitive disadvantage for doing so. And the firm that I I talk about a bunch in this context is Nike. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: You know, when Nike worked out they had child labor in their supply chain, the first thing they did was to try and get rid of it alone, themselves. They went to their suppliers and said, you know, stop using children. That turned out to be super complicated
0: Mm -hmm.
1: because the suppliers are working for many, many people, And all their competitors were not really on the wavelength, and so there was child labor right throughout the whole supply chain, and everyone was benefiting from it. Nike went to every other major textile and footwear company and said, look, we've got to clean up our supply chain. You cannot be using children. You cannot have the kinds of levels of abuse that were happening, all kinds of abuse in the supply chain. So they formed the Sustainable Apparel Coalition. Or in food, Unilever, which was trying to do the right thing and use sustainable palm oil because conventionally grown palm oil is an environmentally and social disaster. Mm. It causes immense deforestation. It's one of the big sources of greenhouse gases. And they said, okay, we're going to use sustainable palm oil. Oh, whoops, it's 20% more expensive. Yeah. Well, I can't do that if all my competitors are still buying the, the dirty stuff. Mm-hmm. So they persuaded, I'm still amazed by this, got 70% of the buyers of globally traded palm oil, so 70% of the globally traded volume, to agree to buy only sustainable palm oil. Mm. And I mean, as you can imagine, that made a huge difference in the supply chain because now suppliers that wanted to do the right thing had buyers for the better product.
0: Right. But
1: again, I mean, I don't want to suggest this is the solution to our problems. It is not it turns out that this kind of self-regulation is very rarely stable. Mm. You know, you get a few firms who say, yeah, of course I'm going to do the right thing. Yeah, don't worry about me, but, but don't look behind the curtain. Mm. And there are always a few firms that, that start to do the wrong thing, and that puts everyone else under pressure mm-hmm. to race to the bottom too. And, and so this is where it gets really interesting. I remember the first time I was in a meeting of footwear and textile executives talking about cleaning up their supply chain. And they'd made a ton of progress. They had independent auditors. They had metrics of how they wanted to improve. They'd really made progress, but it still wasn't working. And I remember one of the chief sustainability officers of one of the larger companies in the world looked at me and said, we're going to have to go to the government. (laughs) Ah, we're going to have to get regulation. Mm. And if we can't get regulation, we have to go to the bankers. Right. We have to go to the people in finance. And we have to tell them to force us to do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the two other things I talk about in the book are completely rewiring finance. Mm -hmm. The idea that investors have a really strong interest in addressing problems like climate change and inequality because they're huge it's a huge threat to their returns too and i i have this crazy i you know i never know whether this is great or creepy but about 15 <laughs> people well you know about 15 people control you know right. half the world's traded financial assets I mean, yeah it's crazy. It's crazy. Yeah, <laughs> it's really crazy. It's really creepy, right? Yeah, but but the good news is, if it's there, only fifteen of them. Maybe they could all agree that addressing climate change was a good idea. Mm-hmm. Paying decent wages was a great idea in the long term, and you know, maybe even we need democracy. Mm-hmm. And I say it's creepy because the way they would do that is turn to all the firms in their portfolio and say, okay, these ESG metrics, environmental, social, and governance metrics we've been talking about, we're getting really serious about that. Mm-hmm. And you know, we want to see you get fossil fuels out of your operations. We want to see you treat your people well. And we want to see you get money out of politics. And we're going to be watching these metrics. We're going to be auditing these metrics. We, we really mean it. Now, that's hugely creepy cuz like should 15 people have that much power and and those 15 people actually work for a bunch of asset owners mm-hmm. so they don't they they don't have the power to do the, that themselves so that that bits kind of creepy but whoa i mean We already have a third of the world's invested capital saying, We want you to get fossil fuels out of your operation. 450 investors, 40 trillion in assets. That's the Climate Action 100. And those are investors saying, You know, we we have to stop climate change. And and so we might rewire finance. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And I'm seeing more and more business people say, Tell me again, Rebecca, about that bit about democracy. I mean, six months ago, before the pandemic, no one wanted to talk about structural change. I would talk about climate change. I would talk about inequality. But the larger issues, everyone would say, I'm sorry, Rebecca, I'm really super busy. You know, that's really not my job. But I think more and more business people can see that we are entering a very critical moment. And the pandemic illustrates in spades Mm -hmm. how important it is to have a democratically accountable, capable government. When you look at the difference in outcomes across the world, and I'm not going to make the cheap crack about the three countries that got COVID under control first are all run by women. Oh, but (laughs) okay. um, (laughs) Duly noted. (laughs) Just between the two of us. um, It's the countries where citizens respect the government and trust the government mm-hmm. and where government has, is willing to rely on science and work with business to address this massive emergency we're facing, that are doing much better and that look likely to come out of, of the pandemic faster and whose economies will, will, will rebound more quickly. You know, when I say, well, government's important, business people look at me going, yep, I think you're right. And in the book, I talk, I talk about some examples mm-hmm. of CEOs working with local states and cities to improve education and health in their local region. And I talk about sometimes in the past when uh, our societies have nearly broken and businesses stepped up and said, okay, we, we're willing to be part of the solution. Let's build inclusive institutions together. So I'm super hopeful. You know, I'm hopeful because people like Eric Osmundsen, who runs Norsk Genvinning, he's he's just a regular guy. He'd be the first to tell you that he couldn't have done what he'd done without his uh, his team. But he single-handedly, I know he says it's his team, but but he began it. He turned around the whole waste industry in Scandinavia and built one of the largest companies in the region in the process. He's not super rich, but he is so
0: happy Mm
1: -hmm. and excited about what he does. His firm is now one of the most desirable places to work in Norway. This is a garbage company, Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs)
1: but there's so much excitement about what firms can do in this area. You know, 20 years ago, uh, the MBAs never said to me, well, how do I make sure I make a difference where I work?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: How, do we, how do I use my life so that it's in service to the people around me? And now students ask me that question all the time. Mm-hmm. And so how can I not be, be hopeful? We have the resources. We have the technology. We know what needs to be done. We can fix our problems.
0: I think that's the thing that's pretty amazing about the book is that you lay out this really kind of horrible, just endless pile of problems, just this towering stack of what seem like insurmountable problems. And then you say, hey, I'm really hopeful. (laughs) But when you explain about things that you've seen in the past, and and I'm just going to comment on a couple of things here, you know, when you look back in the past, as you do in the book, And you comment on in 1800, 85% of humanity lived in extreme poverty. In 2018, only 9% did. In 1800, more than 40% died before reaching the age of five. Now only one in 26 die. So young. What else have I got here? In 1800, slavery was legal almost everywhere. Women didn't vote. Now forced labor is legal in only three countries. And women can vote everywhere. Nobody lived, essentially, in democracy in 1800. Now more than 50% do. I mean, when you look at it that way, it, it does make you hopeful, right? So I know I only have a couple minutes left. So thank you for your hope. Thank you for writing the book and for the work that you do. And I will just comment, Also, you know, just a lot of times we talk about legacy on this podcast, and I think that's a good theme to mention here, too, for you personally, the work that you do, but also for the listeners out there. You know, what do you want your legacy to be? So before I let you go, Rebecca, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners, how they could follow your work or find your book or anything you would like them to know?
1: I tried to write Reimagining Capitalism in a World on Fire as a pragmatic roadmap for business people who were concerned about the problems we face, but really valued business and wanted to stay as business leaders. Mm -hmm. So I tried to, to make it useful. My best friend, when I wrote it, said, remember, Rebecca, anyone can put the book down at any time and go and watch Netflix reruns.
0: Oh, so, yes. <laughs> that's your competition. I tried to make
1: it fun and to tell a lot of stories. And the best compliment I've got on the book, or the one I treasure most, was from a rather grumpy fellow academic who wrote to me and said, Rebecca, I read this book in a weekend. Mm-hmm. It's really easy to read. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I tried to make it fun. I, we are in a terrible place. But we have the resources and the technology to fix it. And fixing it is much more fun than doing nothing. Mm. I, I say at the end of the book, we need an avalanche. And we are only pebbles. None of us can change the world. But all of us can be a pebble. And it's pebbles that start the avalanche. So, um, you know, if we do nothing, nothing will happen. If we move, I think we could trigger enormous change.
0: Thanks very much, Jennifer. I was getting a little emotional there, but Yeah, no, it's it's an it's an important book and a really important topic. And mm-hmm. I'll just mention, you know, you you commented on the pandemic, and I feel the same. I feel as though the last four months have brought these issues really into focus. And so, yeah, the time for action is now. And and I feel as though things are unstable enough that that the time is right, that time is right for us to be able to do things. So, again, for the listeners, we've been talking about Rebecca Henderson's book, reimagining capitalism in a world on fire. Great title. I'm sure that it was just serendipity that you picked the title that would end up being (laughs) so perfect for this moment. So yeah, thank you again, Rebecca, for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Jennifer, thank you very much. It's been a great pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes, airing on Tuesday and Friday, and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic. So thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on podomatic.com. And that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care, and let's talk again soon.